So today for our sermon, we're going to continue in our series. We've been in Philippians for a couple of weeks now. We're going to continue in this series looking at Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Uh, we left off in chapter 2. We went through to verse 11, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. So we'll be starting with uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. This will be our main passage, chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 18, though we will actually move a little bit back to last week and look a little bit at our passage uh, since it sets the context for us. But our, our main passage, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And just so we kind of know where we're going here before we get into it, read this passage. Uh, the big picture here that Paul has in mind uh, is that of spiritual health. He wants to see this Philippian church. Again, this is a church he planted. He's sort of like their spiritual father. And he wants to see the church collectively as a whole, but also each of the members of that church as individuals. He wants to see them uh, spiritually healthy. Uh, that's his desire. That's his desire for churches everywhere. But again, in sort of a special sense with this being a church he planted, he led these people to faith in Christ. He cares deeply about them. He wants to see them not spiritually unwell and sort of struggling, but but flourishing as a church, as followers of Christ, truly spiritually healthy. So that's what this is really all about, this passage that we're going to take a look at. And so let's get, get to it right now. Uh, we're going to read uh, our, our passage here, and as I usually do, we'll sort of go through verse by verse, and I'll interject, we'll do our teaching, and, and of course, as always, we always apply what we've learned, and we'll do that, of course, at the end. So Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And I just want to pause here. So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, hey guys, Philippian believers, you know, you've always listened to me. You've always obeyed. Whenever I, I've sort of called you to something and given you commands, you've always obeyed. Whether it was when I was there with you, you obeyed me. But now, even though I'm sort of far off, I'm in Rome, I'm under house arrest, uh, sort of, but now much more, even in my absence, listen to what I have to say. This command I'm going to give to you, obey it, follow it, as you've always done. That's what he's saying. So now what is this command that he gives? So we'll read on and find out. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so I want to pause at this point. I'm sure sort of naturally for a lot of us, maybe sort of you have like a, a light going off in your head, sort of warning siren, like, oh, we get, better make sure we understand this rightly. This is a passage that, uh, a verse here that maybe somebody could misinterpret in a way that would sort of pervert the gospel and twist the gospel message. If you sort of read this and you're not careful, you could read it and say, okay, continue to work out your salvation. And so you think, oh, this must be some sort of like works-based salvation, right? Work, work out your salvation, work at achieving it, earning it, right? Someone could misunderstand it in that way. I know we, we know better than that, but I just want to be clear here. That's not what Paul is saying. This is not suddenly some like works-based salvation that he's advocating here. Uh, by no means, that goes contrary to scripture all over the place where it's quite clear we don't earn salvation. It's not something we earn. It's not by works. It's entirely a gracious gift. It's by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ Jesus. We know that. So Paul here, let's just be clear. This is not some works-based salvation that's being put forth here. Now, how do people usually understand this? How would we sort of translate this or understand the, the, these words here, continue to work out your salvation? 
I would say the typical way of understanding this would be to say, okay, here's what's going on. It's sort of talking about living out your faith, to sort of use the language of working out and salvation. The perspective is sort of this, you know, you have faith in Christ and you're forgiven and you're saved. So now let there be sort of an outworking of that faith and salvation that you have. Sort of let there be an outworking of it, live it out. You have saving faith in Christ, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're a new creation in him. Now sort of live it out. Let there be an outworking of that, that faith in Christ that you have and the fact that you're saved, that you're a new creation in him. So sort of live out your faith, to put it simply, would sort of be the typical way of, of rendering this and understanding it. And while certainly we should live out our faith, I would say that's not really what the words that are used here mean. That's sort of a little bit twisting the words there. It's maybe kind of working with the English translation and trying to make it seem like, you know, teach something that certainly falls in line with scripture, but isn't quite what's being said here uh, in the Greek. In fact, the, the word here for, for working out has the sense of to work to completion, to work at achieving. And again, then you might say, well, now that sounds like work at achieving salvation, Pastor Steve. And you said, that's not what we're talking about. And again, that's not what we're talking about. Really, I think wh where, where we have to understand this is, is how we understand the word salvation. The word work out here definitely has a sense of work toward accomplishing, work at achieving. But where we go wrong is when we read salvation, our mind sort of immediately jumps to a, a, sort of the singular sense of salvation that we always think of rather than realizing it, it has a range of meaning. And so we sort of jump straight to salvation. This is salvation from sin. This is justification. And so if you're saying workout means uh, work toward accomplishing, now that's like work at accomplishing your salvation, your justification, work it and, and earn sort of your right standing with God, right? That isn't what it means. That, that's a misunderstanding of how salvation is being used in this passage. Yes, it means here work toward accomplishing, but salvation here has the sense of healing. And, and in scripture, the word for salvation or to save regularly has that meaning. We may not realize it, but, but when you read healing or health or whatever in various places in scripture, it's the word to save with the sense of sort of being saved from maybe a physical ailment. You've been healed. You've been delivered from it. You've been saved from it. So it often has sort of that sense of, of healing, uh, and that's the sense of salvation in this passage here. And it fits contextually. We'll sort of talk about the context and how th this translation really fits. But the picture here, and here it's not physical healing. That's not what's in view, but rather spiritual healing. And so what Paul has in view here is the reality that the Philippian church, uh, they're spiritually unwell in certain ways. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll get there. But there's sort of, uh, there are some sins that are present in the church. There are some issues, and he has addressed those. We'll back up to earlier in chapter two and talk about that. This is from last week. But there are sort of some sins, some issues, some spiritual unwellness. And what he's saying is, guys, you got to work at this. You got to deal with this issue. These sins shouldn't be present. You're spiritually unwell. I want to see you healthy. And so you got to work at this and work toward achieving spiritual health, spiritual healing, where these sins are no longer present. They're no longer an issue. That's what he's saying here when he's talking about, as it's often translated, right? Work out your salvation. He's saying work toward achieving spiritual health. And again, as individuals, but also collectively as a body of Christ. So this isn't some workspace salvation, uh, but rather, again, we have to understand this in terms of healing and it fits contextually. This is sort of work toward achieving spiritual health. That's the sense of this. But before we back up to earlier in this chapter, I want to finish off sort of this sentence, go into verse 13 here. 
Uh, and he goes on and he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So even as he says here, guys, you, you got to work at achieving spiritual health. He sort of wants to qualify that and say, but, but don't really think ultimately it's your work. It, it's really fundamentally God's work. He's the one who's actually going to bring about the transformation. He's going to be the one who actually does the work. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to change you on the inside and then change what you then live out and your actions sort of on the outside. He's going to change you inside and out. Yes, you should still recognize, hey, we need to be spiritually well. We should do our part and sort of work toward that and work toward achieving spiritual health, spiritual healing, where these sins are no longer an issue in our lives. But he says, as you strive toward that, understand it's not going to be you fundamentally doing that work. It's God who's going to be at work in you and bringing that transformation. But now I want to back up and really address, well, like, what are these issues? What is this lack of spiritual health that Paul sort of has in mind that he's now addressing here and saying, hey, guys, you got to get spiritually well, spiritually healthy. So we're going to back up earlier in this chapter. This is the passage we looked at last week. We won't read the full 11 verses, but we'll read verses 1 through 5. Uh, and here's what Paul says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And before I go on, all of these things he's going to say, do these things, be these things, uh, right? While he isn't explicitly saying you're not currently doing this, that's sort of implied, right? We can sort of read between the lines and, well, why is Paul saying be like-minded? Well, because he's sort of gotten a report back. He knows sort of what's going on in this Philippian church, and he knows they're not so like-minded. And that's why he's addressing these specific issues. And so these issues he's addressing that we're going to talk about in the coming verses here at the beginning of chapter 2, these things he addresses, he's addressing them because they're sort of struggling in these areas as a church. This is the, these are the areas in which they're sort of spiritually unwell. So he says, right, be like-minded. Like Make my joy complete by being like-minded because they're not oh so like-minded, right? Having the same love. And here he has in view sort of this wonderful Christ-like love, right? Brotherly love is, is the family of faith, this deep love for one another. And again, why does he say, hey, you all should be characterized by this wonderful love for one another? Well, he, he brings it up because that's not what they're currently characterized by. They aren't currently sort of all as a body of Christ, just sort of deeply, profoundly loving one another in a Christ-like way. They're not doing that. They're struggling with that. And then he goes on, being one in spirit and purpose, a little bit more of a literal translation, of one mind thinking the same, which is sort of the same as what he already said, being like-minded, right? Sort of they, they, they're not of one mind. They're not like-minded thinking the same. And what he has in view here is sort of, uh, in regard to what should they be thinking the same? What is this like-mindedness? And it should be sort of centered on, on the Lord, centered on God, centered on Christ, sort of he's everything. We're just focused on God and living for him and obeying him and serving him and glorifying him and following his commands, loving him and loving others as he commands us to as well. Just sort of one-minded, focused on him, all of us having that same mindset. It's all about Christ and just living for him. And he's saying, you're not like that. You're not of one mind and having that right mind centered on Christ. You're sort of, you all have your own mindset and agenda, your own things that you're about and focused on. You're sort of all scattered, right? And then he goes on here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit that is sort of empty pride. So, right, again, he's addressing these because it speaks to the situation here. He says, don't do these things because, in fact, you are currently doing them. 
Don't do nothing out of selfish ambition. Well, there is selfish ambition present in the Philippian church. That's why he addresses it, right? Don't have this empty pride. And he's saying that because there are people in the church who have this empty pride. There is this pride issue, but he goes on, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves, right? They're characterized by sort of this selfish ambition. They're about themselves. They just want to advance themselves. They're puffed up with pride. They don't have humility, right? In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And again, in their pride, they're sort of centered on themselves. They think they're the greatest rather than having that humble mindset and, and esteeming others above themselves. Continuing on, he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And again, he doesn't just sort of randomly say this. He addresses this because it's an issue in the Philippian church. They are currently looking to their own interests, right? They're sort of selfish. That was already referenced in the prior verse. They're sort of centered on themselves. They're looking to their own interests rather than being concerned about other people around them in love for their brothers and sisters in Christ saying, hey, I'm concerned about you. I want to look out for your interests as well. And again, so Paul addresses that here. And then he goes on, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, right, with this wonderful hymn of the early church about Christ, how Christ humbled himself, right, to the point of not just becoming one of us. He did do that, but even further to the point of dying on a cross. But of course, God then exalted him to the highest place. And that's sort of where we leave off. That goes through to verse 11. And then we reach verse 12. And he's like, hey, guys, again, remember, you're sort of spiritually unwell. You, you need to work at achieving spiritual health. Uh, in, in, in your church and as individuals. And so there are all of these issues uh, that are present in the Philippian church. This is the whole context that then sort of sets up, again, verse 12, which is where we started our main passage. So there's all these issues. And I would say, again, think of last week, big picture, what Paul had in mind in that passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, was unity. So he sees all of these different issues. You're spiritually unwell in all these different ways. You're sort of, you're not, you're not united having sort of this one mindset centered on Christ. There isn't sort of this love that, that you all ought to have for one another that's deep. You don't have that, right? And he goes on about other things. You're puffed up with pride. You don't have humility. And all of these different things that he sort of calls out is issues and sees this spiritual sort of sickness, unwellness within the body of Christ there in Philippi, he recognizes these are all things that sort of left unchecked will cause great disunity and division in the church. I would say probably, this is sort of a little bit speculation, we don't, we don't know with certainty, he doesn't sort of say it specifically, but I would say probably there isn't yet great division within the church. If there were, he'd probably call it out and say, there's all sorts of factions and sides, you know, you're, you're totally divided and one faction over here sort of arguing against that side. He doesn't specifically address it in that way. So I'd say probably there hasn't arisen yet great disunity and division within the church, but he recognizes there's sort of all these red flags, all these things, this, again, spiritual sort of unwellness within the church that if left unchecked will sort of blow up and cause division and great disunity in the church. And so he's, he realizes, you guys, you're sort of spiritually sick as a body of Christ. There's some issues here that you need to work on. And again, that's where we get to now verse 12, as we talked about and he says, right, work at achieving spiritual health. You guys, you're spiritually unwell in a lot of areas. It's ready to blow up in regard to division within the church. This is not okay. So you need to work at achieving spiritual health. But again, understand, it's not really you who's going to do the work. It's God who'll do the work within you. 
And then he goes on, we read verses 12 and 13, but sort of coming back now to our main passage, verse 14, he goes on, do everything without complaining or arguing. And again, this is probably, he's saying this because he's gotten word, these are issues in the church. Oh, you know, they're kind of grumblers and complainers and they argue about things. And again, so he's calling this out, that that's sort of, that's spiritually unwell. You need to be spiritually healthy. So do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe, right? So here's, here's what Paul has in mind, and this is what he wants to see for the Philippian church. Again, currently the spiritual sickness, they're unwell, but he wants to see them again working on this, work at achieving spiritual health, recognizing, hey, we've got these issues. We need to, in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, work on these things, allow the Spirit to work and transform us so then we, we can become spiritually well. And now sort of spiritually well, not just individual followers of Christ, but collectively as a body of Christ, right now we can shine like stars in the universe and sort of have the mental image here. Don't, don't imagine just sort of in a city where there's a lot of light pollution and you try to look up at the stars and it's like, yeah, the stars look nice, but it's maybe not quite as remarkable. Imagine like 2000 years ago where there isn't electricity and light everywhere and it's the night sky and maybe even it's not like there's a full moon adding all that light, a new moon. And it's like the stars just sort of pop. They're brilliant in the night sky, beautiful, radiant. And you can still see that today. You just kind of have to go into the wilderness a bit, way out away from sort of civilization, but you can still see just that, that unbelievable beauty of the night sky. And sort of Paul's using that imagery. It's like, that's what he wants for, for us, for the Philippian church, for Christians everywhere. This is what, what Christ desires for his church, for us to, to shine like stars do, just as they shine brightly in the darkness of the night. We ought to shine brightly in this dark world, this world that is dark all around us, right? And as we shine brightly, God's glorified in that as we are spiritually healthy, not just as individuals, but collectively as a church and shine like stars in a dark world, right? As we're bright lights in a dark world, God's glorified in that, but also it's a, it's a powerful testimony for Christ. As we live in this radically different way from the people around us, we live in love and faithfulness and obedience in a godly way. Uh, people will take note. They'll see us shining brightly and take note. And yes, some people will still hate us because they're going to hate us just because that's a reality. They're sort of in their hearts arrayed against God and they want nothing to do with him and they'll hate us just because we're followers of Christ. But some will take note and say, man, you shine brightly in a way that's different from the world around, around, you know, you love people and there's just something about you and the way all of you just sort of care for one another and, and the way you live your lives in, in an upright and moral way, it just draws me in. There will be people who will respond that way. And that's, again, what Paul has in mind here. And he goes on, right? So I'll just reread this, this to sort of set our context here, right? Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe, holding firmly to the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, right? So holding firmly to the word of life here, meaning the gospel message, right? That is clinging to that gospel truth, right? Understanding it, not sort of falling away. And he knows, he knows they're holding firmly to the word of life, to the gospel message. He knows they're truly saved. They're not, they're not going to fall away. But nonetheless, as he says and urges them as a church, hold fast to that. Don't abandon the truth of the gospel. Don't go after other supposed gospels, false gospels, but cling to the truth of God's word, the truth 
of the gospel message of Christ and what he's done for us in order that, right, I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. In view, he sort of has in mind here, like, if you are, I know you're going to hold firm to the very end. You're not going to abandon the faith. You're not going to abandon the truth of the gospel. But if you did, like, then all that effort I put in, like, that's for nothing. Like, I labored and toiled to plant this church, to lead you to faith in Christ. Theoretically, if they were to fall away, it's like, then now that was for nothing. I labored and toiled for the Lord, in this case, for nothing. Uh, and that's what he has in mind there. But he knows they will hold firmly to the end. Verse 17, continuing on. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, often, I would say, the typical way of understanding this is, oh, Paul here is referring to the possibility of his death. The language here, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, that sort of language of, you know, if, if I'm to die, right, here he is under house arrest. And so the, the typical way of, of understanding, it's not everyone, but a lot of commentators would say this, the way of understanding this is like he's under house arrest, right? And what if things don't go his way and he winds up, you know, being found guilty of whatever charges and, and winds up executed. And that's sort of what he has in mind, if that's the case. But I'd say that that's probably not what he has in view. And even here, the language like of even if, if, often the word they're used for if can be very easily translated in English as since. It's sort of a rhetorical use of if. It's not if and really I'm not sure. It's sort of if, and of course this is indeed the case. And, and it's often translated as since in, in Scripture. And we see that all over the place. I'm not just sort of trying to twist it here to fit what I want. We often see that in Scripture where the word that, that can be translated as if is often translated as since. Again, sort of a rhetorical device in use. If this is the case, and as we all know, it is, that's, that's the sense in which it's met here. And here this being poured out like a drink offering is really in reference just to his sufferings in service to the Lord. As, as he serves the Lord as, as Lord's apostle to the Gentiles, he faces all sorts of opposition and sufferings and persecution. And right now, that, that's, at, at this time he's writing this, that's a reality, right? He's, he's under house arrest in Rome. And that's what he has in mind, not, not his death. Even that language of poured out like a drink offering, there are no other instances of that even outside of scripture, being used in reference to one dying. Uh, here it's in reference to his sufferings. Uh, and sort of the picture here, so he's describing his, his sufferings here as sort of like a drink offering, an offering up to the Lord. That is his willingness to suffer for the Lord as he continues to serve him, even as he faces these hardships, as he serves as the Lord's apostle to the Gentiles. He faces imprisonment and, you know, Paul faced an awful lot as he faithfully served the Lord. His willingness to endure all of that and remain faithful to him is like an offering up to God. That's sort of how he's picturing it. But he doesn't just describe it as a drink offering. He describes it as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Uh, and so there's also an offering, a sacrifice that's offered up uh, by the Philippians that he is referring to here. And this is this financial gift that they have sent to Paul to, to help him, to support him. Uh, in ministry. And this is like, he's describing this as their offering. It's like a sacrifice that they have offered up to the Lord. This is a gift they have given to the Lord in service to the Lord to further his kingdom purposes amongst the Gentiles to support Paul's ministry. And sort of, it's like, 
this, these are the offerings that both of them, Paul on the one hand, but also the Philippian church on the other. These are the offerings that they have offered up to the Lord in service to him, in service to the proclamation of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. And, and, and Paul's offering here is his willingness to undergo all of these sufferings and hardships. And the Philippian sacrifice was their financial gift that sort of enabled this, this ministry to take place. And so sort of natural imagery here where you had, again, think of sort of like old covenant era where you would have animal sacrifices, but, but routinely there'd be a drink offering that would accompany that. And so there's sort of, those are like joint offerings that were offered up together. And Paul's using that imagery here saying like, these are joint offerings offered up together. Again, toward the same end in service to the Lord for the furthering of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. There's the Philippians offering, that's their financial gift and Paul's offering as he undergoes all of these hardships. That's the language there, what's being depicted. In fact, earlier here in, in, this, in, in Philippians in chapter one, Paul even talks about how he's certain he's not gonna die. What, what, what his, his, his house arrest that he's under, this isn't gonna end in his death. He's quite confident of that. So that just further supports that suddenly here, he wouldn't be now referencing, but if I do die, even though I already said, I'm confident this won't end in my death. Again, so clearly here, he's talking about his sufferings. But he goes on in reference to his sufferings being poured out as a drink offering. What's his response? He goes on and he says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So his response is joy. He's glad. And that might seem sort of counterintuitive, like who loves sufferings? I mean, you know, sufferings don't make you glad. It's not like, yay, I'm under house arrest. That was always my dream. I wanted that. Of course, I'm rejoicing. So rejoice with me. Uh, but, but rather, Paul's mindset here is I, I just I count it a joy to suffer for my Lord and my Savior who suffered immeasurably for me. That's just his mindset. You know, I count it a joy to show my love and devotion to my Lord and Savior. Uh, if that means all sorts of hardships, again, to, as a means of showing my faithfulness to him, that no matter what happens, whatever I face, whether it's imprisonment, death, you name it, and he faced a lot, to, to undergo all of that is, again, to him, just a great honor to show his love, his devotion, and he counts it an honor and a joy and a privilege to suffer for the one who suffered for him. And so he just rejoices in it, and that ought to be our mindset. And he says, hey, you guys, you Philippians, again, it might be easier for you to be like, for you to be all down. Oh, our spiritual father, Paul, like, it's not going easily for him. It's not going smoothly. He's under house arrest. Like, we're just going to mourn and, and weep and so forth. And Paul's like, no, 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 I'm rejoicing here. Like, it's, it's just a joy for me and an honor to, to suffer for Christ, to serve him in that way and, and, and have that be sort of an offering unto him. That's a joy for me. And you guys ought to rejoice with me. You know, you, my spiritual children, rejoice with me that I have this privilege and honor of suffering for the one who suffered for me. And so that's why he says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. But sort of coming back again, big picture, what's this all about? It's all about spiritual health. This is Paul's great concern in this passage right? It, it, at the start of chapter 2, we have verses 1 through 11. We see some of the issues, the lack of spiritual health in the Philippian church that concerns Paul. He doesn't want to see that present in the body of Christ. Christ doesn't want to see that present in, in his church. And so Paul says, guys, you got to work on this. you got to work at achieving spiritual health. Again, but remember, it's not really you who's going to do the work. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to bring that real transformation. Uh, and again, Paul's greatly concerned about this because this is God's desire for his church. He wants his church to be spiritually well. Christ wants his church to be spiritually healthy. He wants us to shine like stars, to use the imagery uh, that Paul uses here, to shine 
brightly in a dark world. For his glory, first and foremost, all in service to him for his glory, as we, his people, shine brightly, living faithfully and obediently unto him. That's glorifying unto God, but also it makes us a real powerful witness for Christ as well. Uh, and so I want the, the same thing that Paul wanted for the Philippian church. I, I want for us as well as a church. Now, I don't look at New Hope Chapel and say, oh, you know, we got all sorts of spiritual sickness here. You know, I'm not going to go on like Paul and rattle off, you know, as he does in the first part of this chapter, all these negatives. I think generally speaking, we're a spiritually healthy church, but that doesn't mean we're like perfect in spiritual health. We're all sinners. We still have our areas of, of struggle, speaking of us collectively as a church, but also as individuals, right? There are areas where we're spiritually sick, so to speak, or unwell. We have sin that's still present in our lives, and we will continue to struggle with sin in various ways till the day we die, we go to be with the Lord. And so there's always room for growth in regard to spiritual health. And so I want to see us just ever increasingly just growing in spiritual health as individuals, but also collectively as a body of Christ, uh, that we might shine brightly, as Paul talks about, and better glorify God in our lives and better be a witness for him. But I don't want to just leave our application general in that sense, like, hey, let's just grow spiritually. That's what we're supposed to do. So let, let's do that. Let's grow in spiritual health. I want to be as sort of specific as I can be in regard to our application, sort of a tangible challenge. And so here's what I want for, for each and every one of us, uh, for us to do. Uh, really take the time to prayerfully identify areas of spiritual sickness or sin in our lives. And maybe you know it, some of you might know sort of off the top of your head, like, yeah, I know some of the areas I struggle with. Maybe it's pride or maybe it's sort of anger or patience. Maybe you just struggle to forgive at times. Maybe, you know, like, you know, I just need to grow in love for the Lord, or maybe it's a struggle loving other people, whatever it is. Maybe you know off the top of your head, like, yeah, I know what God's kind of already laid on my heart in regard to areas of sin in my life, areas where I'm sort of spiritually unwell. Uh, maybe you're sort of not sure what the big glaring areas are in your life of spiritual unwellness. Uh, and take the time, really discern this prayerfully. Take the time to ask God to open up your eyes to whatever those areas of sin are in your life. And as he opens up your eyes to those areas, then commit yourself to working at spiritual health in that area, working toward achieving spiritual health in that area of spiritual sickness. Again, whatever that is, lack of struggling to forgive, lack of love for others, right? Whatever it might be, maybe you're not being the spouse you ought to be or so forth or as a parent or whatever that area of struggle is, commit yourself to growing spiritually in that area. Commit yourself to, to growing spiritually and achieving spiritual health in that, that area. Again, knowing ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who's going to bring that transformation. And so as you commit yourself to growing spiritually and being rid of that sin, whatever it is in your life, do it prayerfully. Don't think this is just sort of some human endeavor. I just need to tackle my unforgiveness towards somebody. I just need to tackle my lack of love. I just need to tackle you know, whatever it is that, you know, whatever sin struggle is present in your life, you know, insert whatever that sin is. I just need to do this on my own strength, just pull myself up by my bootstraps, apply myself. You know, we need to do our part to be sure, but we need to ultimately recognize that it, as Paul talks about here, as he mentions in verse 13, right? Ultimately, it's God who's going to bring the transformation. He's going to be the one who makes us spiritually well and healthy, who purges us of the sin that still lingers within us. So as we commit ourselves to growing spiritually and being rid of sin in our lives, we need to do it prayerfully. Just day after day, as you're in your quiet time with the Lord saying, 
God, I know I, I struggle with this, but I, I want to be rid of it. I don't want to live in this sin anymore. Uh, just Holy Spirit, transform me, change me on the inside. Yes, I'm going to do my part to, to work at achieving this spiritual health that I need to achieve in this area of my life, but I know I can't do it on my own. Uh, it's you who's going to do the work. So Holy Spirit, change me and just continue to bring that prayer, that request before the Lord again, day after day in your quiet time with him. And again, then do your part to seek spiritual health. Uh, and if you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's going to work. He's going to bring transformation. He'll bring transformation in your life as an individual. But then as, if we all step up to the plate and say, yeah, we all have areas of sin and, and we want to grow spiritually and we want to do this and, and hear this challenge and live it out. And as we all seek after spiritual health in our lives, not just will we grow as individuals, but then collectively as a body of Christ, we will be growing in regard to spiritual health. And then as individuals, but also collectively as a body of Christ, we will shine like stars in a dark world. We will shine brightly in a dark world for God's glory, first and foremost, but also in a way that makes us a powerful testimony for Christ in this dark world. So let's do that. Let's hear the challenge. Let's live it out. Let's seek to be spiritually healthy in an ever-increasing way, more and more ever-increasingly spiritually healthy for God, for his glory, and that we might be a better witness. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, this passage. It's a good reminder. I think we're, generally speaking, if we compare to other churches, a healthy church. It's not like there are glaring sins and spiritual unwellness all around. But nonetheless, we have our sins, each and every one of us. We know that. There is still that spiritual sickness and unwellness within us. And we want to grow in spiritual health ever increasingly. We want to see greater spiritual health here at New Hope Chapel for us as individuals, each and every one of us, but also collectively as a church. And Lord, may we take the challenge today seriously, seeking that great spiritual health. May we prayerfully discern where in our lives as individuals we still struggle with sin, sort of those particularly significant sins in our lives that keep coming up. May we prayerfully discern that. May you open up our eyes to it as we do that, if we're not already aware of it. And then as you reveal to us that spiritual sickness in our lives, may we truly commit ourselves with your help, Holy Spirit. May we commit ourselves to growing in spiritual health in that area, to being rid of that sin. That not just as individuals, but then also collectively as a church, we might grow in health spiritually and shine brightly for your glory and that we might be a better witness for you in this dark world, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.